It is a joy to be with you. I mean that. Um, just even for the fellowship, sometimes up there in Bandera, it gets lonely in terms of fellowship. And it's a real joy to be with you and also to see your faces. Every Tuesday night, I'm on a webinar that speaks to 30 countries in the world, but I don't see anybody. I just... <laughs> and it, it, I, I'm a person who preaches to people's eyes. And I, I say, do you understand? And I watch your eyes. And you ask the computer, does it understand? And, and so I, I relish this opportunity to share with you something that is very foundational in my own life. I came to, and I will use the term carefully, but I came to a revelation of the covenant um, way back when I was living in Brooklyn, New York, working with kids on the street and asking the Lord for an insight into the gospel that would turn these kids off the street into flaming balls of Holy Spirit fire. And I knew that what... what now, please understand me. This is a broad statement. But much of what was being taught in the churches did not turn people into fire. It sent them to sleep. And I knew that there was something in the Scripture that set the first believers on fire. And I prayed, Holy Spirit, show me that. And in the middle of a message uh, that I was delivering in New York City, um, I, I suddenly the scripture fitted together and it spent the next, I don't know how many years, putting together what the Holy Spirit showed me and came to realize that, and again, I, I'm using these words very carefully because they're extreme words. But I am saying that the entire revelation of God, the revelation of who God is as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, the revelation of God's purpose, what He's up to, why He created in the first place, where He's going, what, what is this that we call salvation, all of that is given to us in the Scripture in covenant language. And again, that, that's a phrase, I, I mean it, it's a language. It's a covenant language. And like the word in the Old Testament, loving kindness, the word faithfulness, the word righteousness, the word holiness, the word glory, the word sanctification, they're not words that you'll learn in high school. They are words that come to us through this revelation. They are the vocabulary of covenant. And therefore, when I come to the Scripture, I've got to know something about that. If I don't, there's an awful lot that I'm going to miss because, oh, I'll get the drift of it, but the richness, exactly what the Holy Spirit is saying, I'll miss it if I don't understand the language. Of, of the covenant. And, and tragically, here in the West, that is Europe and here in the States, um, we've got to face it, we are a shallow, miserable bunch of people 
when it comes to things of heart, when it comes to things of commitment and loyalty, here in our Western world, we pretty well threw that out in the last uh, half a millennia. It's gone. Wherever I've gone in the world uh, and, and traveled almost every continent of the world, I've always looked, how do you make covenant? Because that's my hook. I can take them immediately there. Every country I've been to, they make covenant to this very day. They knew exactly what I'm talking about. It would be the same as the New Testament persons who first heard the gospel knew exactly what it was talking about. But when I come here to the States or to Europe, they don't know what I'm talking about because we don't make covenant anymore. Because covenant is a matter of heart trust. It's a matter of giving my very essence and self away. And we don't do that here. We're too shallow for that. And so let me begin at the beginning because I assume that your head is where my head was at until I saw what this was talking about. I, I, I have to assume that we all, all of us, breathe the, the somewhat poisonous air of the culture in which we live. And, and therefore, some of these words are odd and strange. So let's get something straight. It, it helps. Um, so, number one, and this is the biggest problem we have here in the West, a covenant is not a contract. And I've heard that interchanged. No, no, no. A contract, in fact, is the exact opposite of a covenant. You know, we, we make contracts because we don't trust each other. You know, you... you you draw it up, you see. The, the, the plumber comes to your house and you, you say, Make, give me a bid. And he gives you a bid and we say we go ahead. So now we're moving into some sort of contractual exchange. We, if you do what you said, because see, underneath I don't really trust the guy. So if you do what I say and you said, then... I will pay you so much. If you don't do what you say, I not only will not pay you, I will sue you. And, and so, contract. Do you, un do you understand? And, and, and attorneys make their business because we don't trust each other. If we trusted and loved one another, attorneys would be out of business. But an attorney is someone that's going to protect my interests. Me. And I'm going to build my wall and get my artillery to make sure that you do what I want you to do. A contract. And so a contract is a self-protecting, self-serving document. It, it, it is based on distrust. It's based on the fact I don't trust you. And therefore we need this contract. Okay. Forget contract. It is not in the Bible, except in the nastiest terms. It's to do with what the New Testament calls flesh. It's to do with what the New Testament speaks of as good works and legalism. 
We are not people of contract. We are people of covenant. Okay, then what on earth is covenant if it isn't contract? Covenant is relationship. That's the key word to covenant. It is relationship. And it is a relationship of self-giving. Covenant is scary. Because covenant means I am giving myself away to you. You could say that covenant is like this. I'm shielding my heart. I make sure you don't hurt me. But covenant is I open my arms and I say I give myself unreservedly to you. Not merely giving you possessions. Not merely an exchange of goods. This is a giving of myself and making room in my heart for you as you give yourself to me. And the goods and stuff that goes with it are the P.S. to the covenant. But this is an exchange of persons which is based upon trust. A trust that you could say is... (laughs) to the nth degree, uh, written into using biblical language, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Have you ever read that verse in Hebrews 13, in the Amplified Version, where it brings out what we can't do in English, it brings out the meaning of that word, those words in the original language, and it says, I will never, I will never, I will never, I will never, On no occasion, there's no possibility that I will ever leave you, ever forsake you. I will not, I will not, I will not. That's a mouthful in English, but you can say it in the original language. That's covenant. I can't leave you. I am bound to you. You may do things I disagree with, but I cannot leave you. I can never forsake you, let you go. We are bound in covenant. And I trust you and you trust me. That's the foundation. It's the meaning of love in the Bible. You see, here in the West, love is that ethereal thing that got bluebirds attached to it and violins in the background and all that sort of stuff until the lights go up and you see they're not bluebirds, they're baby vultures. And all the violins go out of tune. That's not love. That's sentimentality. This is cover in the Bible. The word love is locked into covenant. I give myself away to you. It actually means I'm, I'm risking you hurting me. I'm being vulnerable. And I will never leave you, never forsake you. So covenant is a bond. A bond of love. A joining bond where... It's a new kind of mathematics where one plus one equals a new kind of one. Where two persons have been united, two parties. In Bible days, it could be two tribes, two nations. It was, but they're united. And along with this action of union goes two things. One was the shedding of blood. I'll get to that in a moment. And the other was an oath by which you called upon your God. 
and said, You be the witness of this union. Be the witness of these promises. And you ensure that they are kept. You watch between us to make sure they are kept. And then the oath included that I will keep my promises to you even if I die to keep them. And if I should not keep these promises, if I should betray you, then God be my witness that I ask you to kill me when I do that. It was the most solemn moment when two parties would enter into covenant. How did they do it? If it was two nations, two tribes, two families, from each side they'd be selected representatives. Or another word that's used in the Bible for this is mediators. Or a modern word could almost be attorney. It means someone who represents me. And the way these people looked at it, that is, if you lived in Bible days and were thinking about this, the way they thought in Bible days would be that you would be inside your representative. He wouldn't be just some chap doing something for you. You would be in him. And as the two parties would stand facing each other to bring to pass this solemn event of covenant making, and your representative moves out to make covenant on your behalf, you would know that you are in him. What he says, you say. What he doesn't say, you don't say. What he does, you do. You are one. He's your representative. And when he will make the covenant, you will make the covenant. What he does, you do. You're wrapped up in his history. How does he make the covenant? Oh, there's a preamble. I won't go into that. It was just the history of how we got here. That is saying, I, I, we don't take this lightly. Um, we, we've... We've been faithful to each other this long time, but just never kind of looked at it and realized it. And so they would discuss it, a sort of testimony of what's gone on in the past. And then they would make the solemn terms of the covenant, which is, this is who I am. And this is my wealth. This is my abilities. Here are my strengths. Here are my weaknesses. And I present them to you. And you would do the same. And so if you are rich and I am poor, then I now have access to your wealth. And if you have a mighty army to protect, I now am safe as your army. We are now going to exchange, become one. And they then make a cut in their body. And people get squeamish at this, so close your eyes. If, if, but as I've gone around the world, it, it's, it's always somewhere in the right hand or arm. Sometimes they cut across here. It's somewhere where blood has got to flow. And so they cut here, and as they raise their arm to swear to keep the terms and promises, the blood will run down their arm. 
When I was in Kenya, they cut the tips of their fingers. Uh, other places, they cut across their hand, which interestingly is why we shake hands. Did you know that? That's in the most ancient days of the European peoples. They cut their hands and then shook so the blood mingled and they became bound in blood. Come a long way, baby. <laughs> Handshake means nothing today, but it meant so much more. It's somewhere in your hand or arm you would cut. And then you would raise your right hand, the blood running down, and you would make that oath that even if you would have to die to keep your word, then so you would do. And you swore as your lifeblood ran down your arm. They would make a covenant sacrifice, which was an animal specified that would be cut right down the middle, making two halves. And the persons making the covenant would then walk between the pieces. And tradition has it, and I've seen it, where, where they walked in an elongated figure eight. And so the two would walk and sort of pass somewhere in the middle as they walked through that blood of the sacrifice, a wall of blood on either side. And that could be where our symbol of infinity comes from, where they said to endlessness, we cannot break this covenant. I have sealed it in my own arm, my lifeblood, and I seal it by this dead sacrifice. Always I will die to keep my word to you. I will die to give you my very self. And it was done by the representatives. And as you were watching there as a member of the tribe or the family, and you saw the blood run, and you saw him walk through the blood, you knew that we were in this. There is a very real sense in which at this moment we all have died. Because we're saying this is unto death and therefore we're committed. We are dead men to keep this. Yet in another sense we've resurrected to a new relationship. The one to another. It was all there. And it was looked upon as unbreakable as I've said. You know in the the Sioux Indian, the Sioux Indians of North America, in their language, they do not have a word for a broken covenant because they cannot imagine such a thing happening. And that is the sad story of when us Europeans came here. We made covenant with all the Indian tribes and then broke every covenant which had never been known. It was not a concept to the Indian people. Because once you've made covenant, you can trust them as your brother. Because at the end of this ceremony, they would take those wounds in their hands and they would rub it together. And two bloods would flow as one. In Kenya, they touch fingers. Or as I said, shake hands with the blood in the palm. And at that moment, you are called friend. Over here, what's a friend? Someone you met yesterday. Uh, around the world, friend means you've become a covenant brother. You're a blood brother. Among the Arab peoples today, they have a phrase that says blood is 
thicker than milk. Meaning you could be milk brothers. You had the same mother's milk. But that's nothing compared with a blood covenant. Blood brothership can never, never, never be broken. It comes back to this shedding of blood. And, and, and the shedding of blood, of course, it fills the Bible. So you, you should understand. What, what is the shedding of blood? Well, it's death. But it's death spoken of and carried out in a specific way. The scripture says the life is in the blood. That is, the essence of you, your very personhood, what you might call your soul, is carried by the vehicle of the blood. It's in your blood. And so as your blood pours out of your body, you go out. That's the idea that, that the ancient peoples saw. And they regarded the blood with such awe as sacred. It's a very person. It's a very person poured out. And so it would follow, if I am going to give my life even unto death, then I make the incision and let my very soul come out. But it's not just death. I mean, you're not dying of pneumonia here. You are self-inflicting a wound to show your blood and saying, I'm giving it to you. And it's not a word it's something you see. It's, it's death in action, if you like. It's death placed on display before you. I stand there with my life blood running down my arm saying, See, I give my very self to you. Incidentally, that mark was then sealed. But sealed in a way it would never go away. It became a scar. You might have seen many Africans with scars on their face and their, their, their covenant marks, and, and they are sealed. And the representative would bear that with honor. That was the mark of the covenant where blood was shed that said, I give my life to you. I take you, and you take me, even unto death. And so blood shed Blood poured out means this wasn't an accident. You can die of an accident, but no, no, we're not talking about that. This is not sickness. You can die of sickness, but this, this is not that. This is not murder. This is intentional. This is deliberate. I am pouring out my life in a visual way. And also in an applicable way. Maybe we don't think about this, but if, if this person's going to die for you, then the idea of covenant is, then his death must be applied. And so the blood running is death in an applicable way. It's, it's not saying the person is dead. It is rather, the dead has been, what shall I say, symbolized, that's a sort of weak word, visualized, that's a very weak word, but put them together, you begin to get it, where 
You, so in the Old Testament, have you ever read where they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the door? That was to everything the lamb did in dying is now put on the door. Or the leper, do you remember they put the hyssop and they sprinkled the leper, took the blood and sprinkled it, they applied it. And when you get to the New Testament, the blood of Jesus cleanses from sin. That's an application of his death, this covenant idea, uh, speaks of this blood speaking. Do you remember in Hebrews, you might have got there, yeah, the blood of Abel speaks from the ground. Or as back in Genesis 4, where the Lord says, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. That is, it's blood poured out and is telling you something. I've got wonderful news, you see. When, when covenant blood is shed, it's shouting at you. It's shouting, I give myself to you even if it kills me. I'm yours. It's the idea of the covenant. And so the, both the partners thus shed their blood and because of its form of death they could mingle. I've died for you. You're caught up in this death and now we resurrect a new person. Two, yet we're one. Uh, why did humans make covenant? They've been making covenant. We know we've got records that go back to 3000 BC of persons making covenant. Well, we don't have any history beyond that. After that, it just vaguely goes off into nothingness, except in the Bible. And it's interesting. 3000 BC would take us. Where, do, you, do you ever thought of this? 3000 BC takes you back to the flood. No wonder the world has no more records beyond 3,000. But we do. We know there was a flood. And we know there was an entire civilization before that. So if, if our records of making covenant go back 3,000 B.C., then the strong suggestion is that Noah brought it through the flood. They made covenant since the beginning of time. Why? Why did me? Because when you have done what I have just described, believe me, you have felt the weight of it. You felt the awe. <laughs> You're not going to go back on your word to me. And I'm not going to go back on my word to you. We have sworn, called upon our God made an oath, and we've shed our very lifeblood and said, I'm yours. Men, women did this in order to give themselves accountability, if you like. They, they did it just to make sure we can never break this, because we know our own weakness, so let, let's make sure we know we're not going to break this. Covenant. The fact is, God reveals himself as making covenant. Now, that's weird. Why would God make covenant? But he does. He does. In fact, though I'm not stopping here this morning, but the God who comes to us from unbeginning, before the clock started ticking, when only God was, 
he speaks of himself in covenant terms. And that covenant terms is what we call God's love. But God's love is not like our human love. God's love is a committed unto death kind of love. It's a love that is, in its essence, giving himself away. And the scripture says God is love. You you understand that? God doesn't have any love. He is love. Big difference. Big difference. I've got a bottle of water there. But if you drink it, I don't have any anymore. It's gone. See, if you have something, it's always subject to coming and going. So, I I could say, I have water. I could have a jolly lot of water too. But it would still go down and would have to be replenished unless I came to you and said, I am water. That's a total different situation. God doesn't say, I have a lot of love. He says, I am love. It's His essence. It's the very way God bees. He cannot be anything else. He does not just be loved because He's God. He says, in every word He says, in every action, the Father is love. And the Son, the one we know as Jesus, is always the outspeaking of God love. And the Holy Spirit is always bringing that love to you. God is love. He can't be any other. And so, when there was nothing but God, when there was nothing but love who willed to give Himself away, When the Father gave Himself to the Son, and the Son gave Himself to the Father, and the Holy Spirit was the dance of love, God said, let's create. This is too good to keep to ourselves. Love must give Himself away. Why are you here? Because God so loved the very... He wanted to make you to love you. You are here to be loved. That's why you're here. No other reason that you should be the object of love. And the entire creation, why is it here? The same reason your child's nursery is here. Painted with colors and filled with things that would delight the child. You're the reason for creation. God loved. But God, in His love for you, who knew that we would turn away from that, deceived by Satan, He knew the cost of bringing about His ultimate purpose, which is to have you as one with Him in family. And so love said, the end result is worth it. But the end result meant the death of Jesus, covenant death of Jesus. And it says he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So you see, the death of Jesus wasn't plan B. 
It is, and we really thought they'd listen to us. Shucks, they didn't. Now, now what? we got to bring in plan B. No. Jesus said what he did is what the Scriptures had said beforehand. What Jesus did was exposing the heart of God. This is God. He loves you enough to die in order to bring to pass his purpose. But I say man sinned. Man sinned. What do we mean by that? He obeyed the great lie. Satan the liar came and said, God's not what he's cracked up to be. You think he's good? He's hiding from you who you really are. You're gods in embryo. And he's squashing you because he wants to keep you on eternal welfare. But you're really gods if you only knew it. You can get rid of him. You shall be as gods. All you have to do is stand up and tell him what you know now. Tell him to get lost. You're doing it your way. The great lie. Jesus called Satan the liar. And what he did in the Garden of Eden is the lie. The lie. And love had already warned them. You are free, but you only have one freedom. You are free to be as free as God. For he is life and there is no freedom outside of that freedom. But you, because you are so fantastic, and you're not a robot, you're not a puppet, you have to choose to be who you are. You must choose to be free in the freedom of God love. So what if you don't? Well, there's no alternative. This choice, you see, is not between two possibilities. It's only one choice. Choice to life. The other is death. And what is death? Death is unlife. Death is the awful abyss of darkness and emptiness and meaninglessness, nothingness, blindness, where you can't even see that God is love, and you can another picture of him and you make little idols in your head to say there's a God somewhere but in my blindness I don't know what he's like he must be like us to the super degree and so we created a God of judgment that's it if I had power I'd judge everybody so he must be judge that's God he's judge He's cruel. He doesn't like you. So you cower before him. All the idols that spewed out of that darkness. It's all about God. They got the wrong idea of God. Blinded, darkened. And out of that then came every way in which rebellion could find a means to disobey God. Walk on in the darkness. What's God going to do? Comes into the garden to face these two pipsqueaks. Well, think about it. I mean, two created 
and hear the Creator. And they stand there like a field mouse in front of a herd of elephants and say, we're not going to listen to you. Seriously. You see, I have to say this because according to what they told me when I came over here, you notice I'm not from here, uh, and um, when I came over here, they said, now here is some of the greatest preaching in America. And I read it by a chap called Jonathan Edwards. And he asked the question, what shall God do? And he says, you sit teetering on the edge of hell. And God, with his arrows of wrath and rage, are poised to damn you. Well, that's the greatest preaching in America. That's part of the Smithsonian statement. That's, that's what America believes. I go back to Scripture. And I say, what shall God do with these two creatures that have said we are as God. What can God do? He is love. He cannot be other than who He is. And why did He create these? Because He willed to love them. And shall their diversion stop Him from loving? He gives them some sad statement. It's going to be tough. And that's it. You read Genesis. It's, that's it. It's going to be tough. But he moves immediately. He says, the champion is coming. He shall be born of a woman. And he shall crush, not your head. Think about that. He shall crush the head of the serpent who introduced this lie to you. And in that, he made a covenant. And he sealed it with the blood of an animal from which he took the coats and put it on them. He worked in... What, why? I mean, God is truth. God cannot lie. He cannot lie. So, I don't need him to make covenant... He can't lie. He doesn't need to do what we do, is to say, I really need this in order to keep me from breaking my word. And I need this to give you assurance I want. God doesn't need that. So in Hebrews chapter 6, he says, God gave two, two things by which it is impossible for God to lie. He gave his word. That should be enough. But he said, because I know how you feel, I'll give my covenant. Covenant. How does God swear an oath? For humans call upon God when they swear an oath. What does God do? God swore by himself. He said, understand my word. That that God Himself will cease to be if I do not keep my word. I shall bring you to salvation. I shall bring you to blessing. I keep my word. And He began to introduce this language 
the grammar, the syntax of covenant and salvation, which the human race so blind in such deaf darkness had no concept. These words that we use all the time now, but once upon a time they never existed in the human race. They had to be introduced. And so God came and joined himself to the family of Abraham. Not that Abraham welcomed him, but God says, I'll be taking your front living room and I'm coming to live. And the history of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the sons, they were always trying to get rid of God. And every time God gave them a new concept, they ran for the window, tried to get out. That's the history of Israel. But God had to start somewhere. The whole world had turned away into darkness. And so one man, one family, and he begins to feed them these concepts that he is the God who enters into covenant. But how can a human being enter into covenant with God? I mean, the covenant they knew about, the covenant that I described to you, I'm a human being, you're a human being, I give myself to you, you give yourself to me, and we seal it in blood. Good. Works. But what if the other partner is God himself? How can creature... I've got nothing to give him. All I have he gave. So the whole thing is ridiculous. And anyway, remember where I am. I'm in the abyss of darkness, blind, deaf, and I think God's out to kill me. So there's no no possibility. I don't even want out of here. I, I, I think this is life. I'm a dead man walking, but I think it's life. How shall God enter into covenant? There's nobody on this side. And he began to show it, you see. Because the idea is still amazing to us 2,000 years after the fact. But way back there with Abraham, he said, Abraham, I've given you my word. Now, he said, prepare a covenant. And Abraham knew what to do. And read it, Genesis 15, he split the animals. He knew exactly how to set up a covenant-making And remember, what should happen now is God would walk through the pieces and Abraham would walk through the pieces and they would swear one to another. Only right at the crucial moment, Genesis 15 says that God put Abraham to sleep. And Abraham could only see what happened in vision. And in vision, he saw the pieces that he'd prepared. And he saw the glory of God pass through the pieces. God passed through the pieces for God and for Abraham. So that God said, I swear by myself. It doesn't even depend on Abraham's faithfulness. I swear on Abraham's behalf and my behalf. I take it on myself. And it shall be my blood that seals this. And that moved on 
into the sons and daughters of Abraham called Israel. And he set there the continual sustaining of that covenant. And, and they had the mediator, the high priest. And if you know anything about the high priest, he, he carried precious stones on his shoulder and on his breastplate. As saying, I'm carrying Israel on the strength of my shoulders and in the compassion of my heart. I'm their representative. They're in me. And then he had a victim, an animal. And the animal, he put his hands on the animal and transferred to the animal, transmitted the sins of the people. And all the people would watch and say, there's my sin. And then the blood was shed. The animal has gone to death, gone into my abyss of darkness, gone into my death. And the blood then was carried to the great tent, which was an image, a symbol on earth of the God place, the dwelling of God. And the blood, which was saying, as the animal died and now is brought, so the people took their place and brings them to you. Everybody knew that's a great symbol. It's a great picture. But the high priest is our representative carrying the blood of a victim. It's all flawed. He's got his own sins to deal with. And the animal didn't choose to do this. And the animal doesn't even understand what's happening. It's an irrational animal. It made no choice. And they all knew this is speaking of something. Something beyond our comprehension. This blood is only animal blood. It's not our blood. And so this animal blood is sort of an IOU. It is saying, hold steady. This has authority and power because of what's coming. What's coming? They could never dream it. The prophets, Jeremiah, who stood at the end of the debacle, this people that God had come to live with, they have just gone into shambles and rejected every revelation he gave. And Jeremiah stood at the end of that period, which was, oh, around 600 years before Jesus came. And he says, the covenant that I made with you, you have broken it. You have broken it and walked away in unfaithfulness. But I will make a new covenant. Not like the one we made before, which you broke I'll make a new covenant. And interestingly, that word in the Greek language, it means new as you've never seen before. When you buy a new car, it merely means the latest in a series. It's a car. But this word means new in a sense of a form of transportation you've never dreamt of. This isn't just a new car. This is new. I'll make a new covenant, a covenant that you just cannot imagine. 
Or as Isaiah said when he chipped in, he said, in that day. You know, in that day. What can I tell you about that day? Because eyes have never seen. Ears have never heard. It's never been conceived in the heart of man. The things that God has prepared for those that love Him. It's a new covenant. And in that day, said Jeremiah, I'm going to take my law and write it on your heart. It won't be out there, Ten Commandments. It will be in here, your very life. And in that day, every one of you will know me intimately, personally. He said, in that day, your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. And Ezekiel, at about the same time, a thousand miles away, he said, in that day, I am going to wash you with clean water. You'll be scrubbed on the inside. And I will take the hardness and the rebellion out of you and put in the heart of flesh and soft and open. And in that day I will put my Holy Spirit inside of you who will cause you to walk in my ways. A new covenant. How can God do this? I mean, it's, it's beyond comprehension. Yeah. Nobody did understand it till it happened. They couldn't. It was called the great mystery. But now it's open. And what was the mystery that is now open? It is that God became flesh. We have, who could have thought it? He he mimed it in symbol to Abraham. But the real thing we celebrated this time of the year, the real thing, that in a kitchen in Nazareth, a 14-year-old girl has a visitation by Gabriel who said that she would conceive and bear a child. And she said, but I have no husband. She, she was told that the power of the highest, the Holy Spirit would come upon her and she would conceive without a human father that the Holy Spirit would actually unite her humanity to God the Son. God from God would join her egg and that which would be born of her would be the Son of God. I can hardly get the words out because there's no file in my brain even yet to say I understand that. But God, God, the Creator, became flesh. Have you ever thought about that? Nancy and I have talked about this because I think only mothers can just begin to grasp the ungraspable. Can you imagine Mary, the young teenager, feeling the little legs kicking against her belly and to know that they are the little legs of God who have entered into the life process of human creature. And the song 
Oh, Mary, do you know you kiss the face of God? You've heard? I mean, cooing over a baby and kiss the cheek and to know I've kissed the cheek of God. And yet, and yet, He's authentic human. He's a genuine baby. He suckles her breast. He's a toddler. He's genuine. He discovers butterflies and daisies and daffodils. And I want to say to him, you made it. (laughs) But that's so important, you see, because he didn't know. He's a genuine human who never ceased to be God. And as he, you know, he, I I was very careful to say he took of her humanity. That is, he's one of us, a member of our human race. That, that, That means he's going to hear what Adam hears. He's going to look through eyes at a world the same as Adam. He has joined us. He's not here glowing God floating five feet above the ground. He's not here to say, look at me, try and be like me. He's God who has done the unthinkable. He's God inside of our humanity. And with every choice that he made, he refused to be Adam. With every choice he determined and chose as a human to love and obey his Father. And there emerges within the human race, part of us, one with us, a new kind of human. He's human. He's one of us. But we've never seen one like this before. It's a new way of being human obedience to the Father, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, of my own self, I can do nothing. And God said that when he became human, which tells me that's right, that's proper. You've only discovered what it is to be human when you say, of my own self, I can do nothing. He became one of us and refused to be Adam. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, Jesus danced Adam's dance backwards. He's taking us out. But how would he take us out? I mean, I, I, I said, we're in that abyss of darkness, which we think is life. We are totally self for ourselves. Because if I'm God, then you're not. But you think you are, so we've got a problem. That's the human problem reduced to a sentence. Yeah. We're, we're in this, this darkness, this blindness. We don't remember this. Please remember this. The essence of sin is we don't know God is love. That's the essence of sin. And if God isn't love, then I'm going to run from him. I'm going to rebel against him. But I'm running from a false image that I have. It's part of a lie. 
So Jesus came and talked of the real God and said, Father, or the words he used in Hebrew, Abba, which meant Daddy. That's weird. We thought he was judge. We thought he made up codes of rules and glared at us like a high court judge. Angels were FBI agents. <laughs> and this one said, Daddy. Weird. He began to reveal who the Father is. And then he said, I and the Father, we're one. Whatever you see me, that's what Daddy's like. So I heal your sick. Because that's what we want. And I save you and I forgive you because that's what we want. And if you're a lost wandering sheep, I've come to get you and take you home. I'm not mad at you. And if you're a son that has spat in my face and disgraced my name... I'll run to where you are and hug you, even though I have to put your filthy, pig-smeared face on my face, and I will kiss you all over, because I love you. And religion backed off and said, This man, he eats and he drinks with all the wrong people. But, see, I say it again. We're in that abyss. And he's joined us. Hear me. He's joined us. He's lived a life just like us. With every temptation, with every pressure, refusing to be Adam. But if he's going to get a hold of us, I mean really get a hold of us, He's got to come to the living hell that we call life. And he becomes the representative, the high priest. He becomes the mediator who is man. But at the same time, he's God. And he doesn't bring a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. So the animal was but a symbol of God saying, I give you my life. But now God has come. And with a genuine human body, he is going to shed his blood. You see, nobody murdered Jesus. It all began in Gethsemane. Jesus sweat great drops of blood in Gethsemane. By the time they arrested him, his robe was red with blood that he had sweated. His bloodshedding began in Gethsemane where he chose out of love for his Father and love for you 
But when they came to arrest him, he'd already told the disciples, my father would send a battalion of angels to rescue me. I mean, these people can't arrest God. But he chose, no, I'm going through. That is, covenant says, I'll never leave you, and I'm coming into hell itself to get you. And so when the soldiers came, you see, we say, they arrested him. Have you noticed? He just said, I am. And bam, they fell back in the bushes, sprawled on the pathway. And then he stepped forward, basically saying, do you need some help here? <laughs> Seriously, read it. Read it. They arrested him. And he himself had said, no man takes my life from me. I give it. And if you can get this picture in the short time we've had together, the high priest would lay his hands upon the animal of covenant and would pour the sins of the people with words upon the animal. But now the ultimate representative, who is the ultimate covenant sacrifice, who is going to come where we are with all the power of himself and his salvation to bring us where he is. How does it happen? Using the words of Scripture, the hands of wicked men took Jesus and they spewed upon Jesus the sin, every aspect of sin, abuse, and pain that human could ever inflict on human. It caused it to meet on Jesus. And they laughed and spat in his face and they put the crown of thorns. And what does the scripture say? When he was reviled, he reviled not again. Why not? Because he was taking it. He was taking it. And the finale was they shouted crucify him, which if you were a Jew in those days, the word crucify meant damned to hell. For whoever hangs on a tree is cursed. And so they had their God in the person of Jesus in their hands. And with their hands laid upon him, little did they know what they were doing. With their hands laid upon him, they said, he's the sinner of sinners, damn him to hell. And handed him over to the crucifiers. And Isaiah 53 says at that moment, something bigger than those representatives of the human race. For the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all. To meet upon him. He dies. Well, he has become us. But, but where are we headed? <laughs> headed? Where are we? In the abyss of darkness. I mean, we've got nothing to offer. And there's not one human being that will come out of the darkness to say, I'll be the representative. And even if he did, he's part of the darkness. So, so God says, I want you. I don't want you with a stupid religious Halloween mask on. 
I want you. I want you at your worst. I want you, prodigal son, when you stink like a pig. I want you. So he came into our darkness. And on the cross it said, He yielded up the Spirit. No one murdered him. No one killed him. He said, I'm coming in to get you. And he entered into our death. And the Roman soldier, little did he know, thrust the spear into his side. And there came out blood and water. And Jesus bore in his body the marks of covenant in that he did not walk through a sacrifice. He walked the path of his own death. And very interestingly, the nail prints were here. And have you ever fathomed why Jesus kept the marks? Why? Because his face was marred more than any man's, but that obviously was healed. And the gashes in his head from the crown of thorns was healed. And the lashes on his back, they were healed. But he retained the marks in his hands and feet. Could it be, and that's an honest question, could it be, He's our representatives with the mark of the covenant. There it stands. For in the dwelling of God, John saw him, Revelation 5, he said, a lamb as it had been slain. That is a lamb alive in the heavens who bears the marks of death and yet is alive. And so that's, that's the gospel, you see. Not quite. Not quite. He became as you. Well, can I, can I put it like this? Can I take another five minutes? Put it like this. And I'll say this to shock you so you won't forget it. Though it's not the whole truth this little bit. I'm going to say Jesus didn't die for you. That's the shocking part. So you won't forget this. Because he did die for you. But when we say the word for, we miss a lot. He died as you. An illustration that comes from very, very first hundreds of years of the church. And I'll bring it up to date. If you have a problem with your plumbing in the house you call in a plumber and the plumber uses his expertise to do something for you he fixes your plumbing you pay him say thank you and he goes away if there's something wrong with your electricity you call in an electrician who does something for you because he knows how and you thank him and pay him and he goes away and when you're sick you go to the doctor and the doctor does something for you. This doctor, this covenant doctor, he came to your bedside, terminal, in death, blind and deaf. He did not give you any heavenly medicine. You're beyond that. That is, he didn't do anything for you. This doctor wound 
with you the patient. This doctor got inside of you and your disease and he made it his own and he became the corpse. And then in the power of his own life and the greatness of his power over disease, he came out of the bed and you came out with him. Romans 6, do you not know that when you were baptized... You were crucified with Christ. You were buried with Christ. You were raised with Christ. That is a fact that is more factual than gravity. You are the persons that came out of the grave with Jesus when He united with you. And by the blood that says, unto death, I'm going into death to get you. And I'm bringing you out because we love you. And I'll go into death, which is the end of sin. Because if I leave you there, you'll stay there. But I'm coming in, and I'm getting inside of you, and we're getting out of here together. You get it? Yes, but that all happened 2,000 years ago. Yes, because as I said, that's not quite the end of the gospel. The gospel is that he entered into the God place. He came home to his father. And his father welcomed him and you. For the father sent him to get you. And he comes home with you. And then sends the Holy Spirit to make actual and real in your life today everything that was accomplished in that momentous event when God made covenant with man. That's the gospel. And the gospel, you see, is news. That's what the word means, gospel. Ancient word. In the dictionaries of 1611, it's before we invented America, it's long time ago, ancient English. The word gospel means the good, glad, merry news that makes a man leap for joy. It's news. It's not a list of commands. It's news. Have you heard the news? God has achieved in Jesus Christ. He's achieved the making of covenant. Have you heard the news? Your sins are forgiven you through what God has done. Have you heard the news? You have been delivered from Satan. And here's the Holy Spirit to come and say, That's it, that's it, that's it. And to tell you that you are indeed the child of God that you are. And to be your strength and power. To walk in trust in He who is the truth. That's the gospel. And he that spared not his only son freely gives us all things. Because the fact is, you can only pray for what you've already got. People agonize over that mysterious thing called the will of God. Forget it. Will of God is blazoned before us. What does God want? What's His will? He has willed it in Jesus. He's willed it in Jesus. 
everything that Jesus rose again from the dead to say death is over. Sin is wiped out. The power of Satan is broken. And everything I love intended for you now is. It's the will of God. Everything Jesus accomplished. And that's news, which means it's already done. Right? The six o'clock news isn't about tomorrow. Six o'clock news is about what's happened in the past 24 hours. The good news is about what's happened. So I announce to you the riches of His glory, the riches of His grace, everything that's contained within His blessing. And I say, it's yours through nothing you have done, but through what our covenant representative achieved by the shedding of His own blood and what He achieved in His resurrection, which is now brought to you by the Holy Spirit. So now you can ask for that. You say, why doesn't God just give it to me? Because he's, he's not interested in puppets, robots, and slot machines. He wants a relationship. And he will never impose on you what you don't want. So he said, ask of me. Ask. But we ask for what is already ours. And we ask in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? Recognizing we're in the representative and we are in union with the Holy Trinity as much as Jesus the Son is. We're in Him, so whatever we ask, it's we're recognizing we were brought here by His covenant act. Or to put it this way, you go into a bank and you put a check down for $100. Why do you do that? Because you have $100 in the bank. Well, you wouldn't be doing that. And the bank gives you what is yours. We now come to this incredible God. We are in this covenant bank that is signed by the blood of Jesus, our representative mediator. We ask for what is ours. And it's given to us. Eye has not seen nor ear heard. Neither has the human mind conceived it, said Isaiah. But Paul said, Aha, wait a minute. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. And so eyes do now see. Ears do now hear. My heart can now take it in. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Covenant, has come. Well, that's the canvas upon which the book of Hebrews was written. Fill in the blanks. But I tell you this, when I understood that, it didn't only change my life. That's too cliche. It gave me an understanding of the gospel. It gave me a faith that was rooted in the unchangeable love of God that was covenant love. And woven into the very foundation of my being was his word, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because you're bound in covenant through the representative and by his blood. So I trust the Holy Spirit has used this last hour to at least point a finger, show a light, and set your heart to singing.
But remember, as we come to this end of the service, which I'm going to end, hand over to Clara, uh, but do remember this. All things are yours. All is done and given in Jesus. So come and take what is yours. Amen.